Welcome to the Dynamic Leaders Podcast, part of the Talent 409 Network. We are helping people discover their talent altitude. On this pod, listeners can learn about leadership and other related attributes from former and current successful business people, coaches, and athletes. Each episode will bring you a conversation with people that display the seven pillars of dynamic leadership. Someone who possesses those seven pillars has courage, drive and accountability, integrity, grit, great communication skills, a high level of emotional intelligence, and they can motivate others. We will also talk with individuals that use their athletic and competitive experiences to lead in life, in business, community, or in their family. This podcast is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play, iTunes, and Apple Podcasts. If you have time, please take a minute and on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and review. Today's guest on the pod is Mr. Micah Shippey. Micah is a teacher, keynote speaker, recently published author, and a former coach. He's actually also my former modified soccer coach. Is there anything that Micah doesn't do? We'll find out. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, and let's jam to get started to Detroit, Rock City. Welcome back to the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. Today I have a special guest on. It's Mr. Micah Shippey. Micah, thank you so much for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And let's dive right into this conversation because you have so many different hats that you wear and we're going to have so many different things to talk about. So I want to make sure we can get to as much as possible. But first, I want to give you an opportunity just to tell the listener audience, who are you? I'm a middle school social studies teacher. Um, I'm finishing my 19th year in public education. Um, I coach uh, soccer currently for my children's teams. I used to coach uh, in the Liverpool community here where I work for a little more than a decade. Um, I'm also a educational technology consultant and I work with uh, schools uh, around North America mostly that are seeking to adopt new strategies and emerging technologies to benefit their students and their learning. Very cool. Let's start way back at the beginning then. You mentioned being a former coach in the Liverpool community and now continuing to coach your kids at the lower levels. Did you have an athletic background? I'm assuming you played sports growing up. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what that was like? Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I played soccer and basketball at my very small non-for-profit faith-based school. Uh, we had very limited resources. By freshman year, sports were completely cut. So everything became intramural. So as a 16-year-old seeking to play sports with my friends, um, it was it was very disappointing. Uh, I feel like parts of my life and the opportunities I tried to provide for other children around athletics is based on that void in my own life. At age 16, I started teaching downhill ski lessons, uh, which I did for 15 or 16 years, uh, even after I became a teacher, uh, and found that starting coaching at that very young age uh, – teaching ski lessons is much like coaching. Um, I learned the value of uh, aha moments and how when you train someone to do something, how quickly you get feedback and they get feedback. As a classroom teacher, I've always sought to get that same kind of feeling that I got as a coach uh, in a history classroom, which is a challenge, frankly. So I don't think I've ever had a conversation with anyone, at least on this podcast, where sports was kind of taken away from them or anything big in their life. In this case, it happens to be sports at such a young age when it seemed like obviously you wanted to play and you wanted to compete and that opportunity wasn't really afforded to you. Can you dive a little bit deeper into just what that was really like? And I'm sure it was challenging and maybe even really hard and difficult at times, but what are you know some of the things that came of that, that specifically you have taken with you throughout the course of your life? Well, where I attended school as a child in, in a suburb of Syracuse here, the people were volunteers mostly. So uh, the school itself, as well as the athletic program, was run literally by 50% people volunteering their time. And if you can imagine a school, a pre-K through 12 school run that way, it's pretty amazing and not common. 
Um, I learned at a very young age the value of volunteerism and that being a volunteer doesn't mean you do a half job. It's uh, the same kind of commitment that you have as a full-time salaried person. So when I lost lost sports, you know, I saw parents step up and try to provide opportunity for, at the very least, intramural sports. And so those became role models for me. You know, so I was still coached in basketball by my same basketball coach. We just weren't playing interscholastic. It became uh, intramural. So uh, as disappointing as that was, uh, it was an opportunity for me to see, uh, again, volunteerism in action and the value of community and how people would rise above uh, difficulties. I think teaching is probably one of the biggest career markers of your life, like one of the first big ones as far as your adult life goes. When did that start to enter the equation? Like when did you decide that you wanted to get into teaching? I was very young. It sounds like I'm making stuff up, but literally at age 12, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. Wow. I, knew I, I knew I wanted a wife and kids, and I knew I wanted to be a teacher, which is a little, I guess, a little odd for a 12-year-old, but <laughs> that, that was uh, how I was wired. That's what I wanted in life. I didn't really care so much for achieving highly in school. I was not a, I was a B student for all of my uh, academic career, undergraduate and pre-K through 12. I liked learning, but I liked learning that I thought was meaningful and tangible. Um, and I hoped that as a teacher, I was able to, to take that desire for those tangible moments and bring them into my classroom. Obviously, the evolution of your teaching career has changed not only with your experience, but as technology has changed and the world around you has changed. What are some of the biggest differences from when you first started teaching to as a teacher today? Well, some of the pro- some of the, the challenges or changes are universal for teachers. So, universally, you know, we're seeing an increase in uh, access to technology, and we're seeing that as career professionals, education, when we try to prepare our students for their future, their future is more different than when our parents were trying to train us for our future because technology is changing so dramatically. You know, even workflow solutions. You know, they they say that Intuit did a study that said forty percent of uh, the jobs in the 18 months are all going to be uh, gig-based, so private consultants doing the work rather than uh, corporate employees. So what does that mean for how we work with children in schools, and how do we prepare them for both synchronous and asynchronous workflows? How do we help them, and how do we model that when I'm teaching World War II? You know what I mean? <laughs> so th- those challenges are there. So um, I also pursued during my teaching career, my doctorate. I earned my PhD in instructional design at Syracuse University. And in doing so, I learned a lot about motivational theory, as well as bridging the gap between user and content, and understanding that bridging that gap um, is done through matching the correct tool for the job often. How do you get a student ready for the world these days, especially knowing that they're still relatively young. I mean, they still have, when they leave you, they still have four or five years of school left in K through 12, and then maybe another four or five years in undergrad, graduate, maybe they go for their PhD eventually as well. How do you get somebody ready for the future, knowing that maybe there is those challenges of the old school processes getting in the way of what you really want to be teaching them? Like, how do you find that balance where you can do what you want to do, but also be in line with what the district expects of you? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, of course, we have content standards, we have curricular objectives that every teacher tries to uh, prepare their students to demonstrate understanding through some kind of um, standardized test. But really, what we want is we want to prepare them with skills that are going to benefit them. And so the skills that are going to benefit our students right now that we can tell are are not necessarily computer science and coding is what many people think. Really what we try to focus on, or I'm trying to focus on in my classroom, is preparing my students with soft skills to work together, to collaborate, to be creative. Because those things, those are human nature skills that AI and uh, emergent technology, they're not going to take those from us. We're going to be telling computers what to code instead of just sitting behind them and coding in 20 years. So the creativity and the collaboration and the people skills, the soft skills, they're very important that they're brought into classrooms in creative ways. And, you know, we take our content and we, we leverage our content 
in those skill development, but skills are where it's at. The knowledge is important, but the skills are where it's at. I'm trying to get in the mind of a teacher and kind of what it's like behind the scenes. I mean, do you have a lot of teachers now that either come to you or you go to them or you have a group where you're talking about these challenges? Or is this just more of a solo pioneer project that you are taking on your own? What's that like? I firmly believe that if any teacher feels lonely, they're doing it wrong. Okay. You can't be alone. Teaching is not that kind of profession. We learn from each other. We share with each other. I think that kind of sharing and learning comes in two forms. You have your professional learning community, a PLC, which I define as a local group that you see face-to-face. It might be other teachers in a building um, that you go to and you talk to and you try to think outside of your classroom walls. Uh, But then you have your PLN, and your PLN has has helped me a lot as well to grow because these are people in a a professional learning network that are spread across the world that have a similar thinking and similar desire to grow. I like to think of them as the people that you're allowed to wave your freak flag with. Like, I'm a bit of a nerd in this area, anybody else? And you can kind of craft your own community through places like social media. Um, Those have helped me to grow in trying new things, while my PLC has helped me to grow in addressing the needs of the students within my community. Very cool. And I guess the reason I was asking that question is because of what you said in the previous question in your answer to it about how you need to teach some of these soft skills and about how to collaborate and work as a team and different things like that. And it seems like obviously you as an individual are practicing those same skills with fellow teachers and with fellow professionals in the educational industry. So you're obviously not just saying these things to say them because it sounds right and you read a study about it, you're actually practicing them. And that's kind of the funny thing. I have a a PhD, which is an academic degree, but um, I'm, I'm very much a practitioner. I seek practicality in research, and and if I'm going to get behind something, I have to actually be able to do it or see it happening in front of me. Awesome. Offline, we talked about just how you have been able to get this flexibility, I guess, for lack of a better word, where you can teach full-time and you are also a keynote speaker. I would love to dive a little bit. There's a lot of people, as you mentioned, not only that the world is turning more towards like a consulting type world where people are going to be doing much more of that type of work. But we're also seeing a real big influx of speakers, whether they're educational speakers like yourself, motivational speakers, there's all different types. Talk to us about what it's like, how that process is like, how how do you become a speaker, whether you're trying to do motivational speaking or whether you're trying to do educational speaking? Well, there's, there's several avenues for that, of course, there's the, the TEDx program where you could speak or apply to speak at a TEDx. I heard a speaker one time say that to become a professional speaker, you have to be willing to speak for free a thousand times. That's a tough one for people who want to get into professional speaking full time to understand that you need to be willing to be humbled in terms of how much you ask and all that kind of thing. Uh, for me, I was, I was fortunate enough to be connected with a professional development company that was seeking uh, consultants to train teachers in immersion technology. So I connected with them, and through them, they also do keynote speech speaking at a summit and co- small conferences. So I started to do more and more of those, uh, and then I would look for opportunities. I found one two years ago. I spoke at MIT about augmented reality in education to an augmented reality conference. And so I just kind of sought out, you know, where is a place where I can hone my skills you know, whether it be a small audience, a large audience, whatever, where can I get in front of people and, and talk about things that I'm passionate about? In terms of my work in my classroom, you know, my real job is teaching. I'm, I'm, an, eighth, I'm an eighth grade social studies teacher. That's my real job. So a lot of this work comes on the weekends, a lot of it in the summer. There might be an occasional day of travel here and there. So I've spoken with my administration about it. I'm very transparent about everything I'm doing. Uh, it's important to me. Um, I, and my students know too, and they get to look me up on YouTube and see the kind of work I'm doing. And um, they ask me questions about the things that I talk about to other teachers. And I like them to feel like they're part of this journey as well. Yeah, that's a really cool aspect to the whole thing. And again, offline, we were talking about how neither one of us really had a teacher growing up that was doing multiple things at such a high level like this. And 
to have that type of role model. I mean, it's got to be amazing to see the reactions that the kids have to not only the speeches that you're doing, but then when you come back, I mean, you're just, you're Mr. Shippy, their teacher, you know, and you get to have conversations with them and pick up on life and pick up talking about World War II. Yeah, I mean, I was, uh, yesterday I was in Little Rock, Arkansas, flew home at midnight, and here I am in my classroom teaching. Uh, I happened to also be teaching the civil rights movement. So it was an opportunity to go to Central High in Little Rock, where the Little Rock Nine went to school, take some photos and talk about them in class today. It just worked out. And that, that kind of thing, I mean, that's not normal. And I think it's kind of cool that my students are benefiting from that. Yeah. And I think to your earlier point, what's really cool about the speaking that you're doing in relation to your teaching is it's obviously very similar and you probably use that clout that you had as a teacher, 15 plus years of experience to say like, Hey, this is why I'm qualified to talk about X, Y, Z topic. And let me come speak, whether, like you said, you did some maybe for free or for low cost in the beginning, and now you're getting some traction, you're doing some bigger ones and things like that. But I think you took that practicality approach that you talked about earlier and said, okay, what is my alignment look like? This is what I know. This is what you didn't try to like talk about something that was completely out of maybe, maybe it was a passion of yours, but nothing that you had like any professional background in. Yeah, I don't have professional background in public speaking, but my topics that I speak about, I'm passionate about, and I have a background in that. So I, I speak to my skill set, and I don't extend. You know, I, I don't want to stand in front of an audience and explain to them rocket science unless I have a rocket science background. I don't think that's appropriate. <laughs> I think it's snake oil salesman stuff. I'm not interested in that. Uh, I want to speak from the heart. Sometimes I'll speak to inspire an audience, and I will talk to them about uh, my journey in teaching, I'll talk about heartbreak, my own heartbreak. Um, I'll talk about the difficulties I see uh, in my classroom and the struggles that my, student, my students are having. Um, I'm not reading the stories, I'm living the stories. And, and that, that resonates with the audience. The feedback I get fairly regularly from my keynote speeches or spe um, sessions um, is that I'm approachable and I'm real. And that means so much to me. I would rather have someone tell me that I'm real than I'm polished in wicked smart. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear that I'm relatable and that what I have to say means something to them. Beautiful. I love that. And while I didn't have you as a teacher while I was in middle school at Liverpool, I did have you as a soccer coach. And I can say that as a person, that's exactly how I felt about you as a coach. I'm sure the students who had you as a teacher feel that way. And it's really cool that you've been able to translate that into something that can be really intimidating, not only for the person up there speaking, but for the people listening. I mean, they're like, whoa, you know, Micah Shippey, PhD, you know, a lot of people can't even fathom the thought of getting up there and talking in front of hundreds, sometimes thousands of people. So to be approachable in a setting like that, whereas, you know, teaching and coaching may be a little bit more intimate, I think that's a really unique attribute that you have. I, I agree. And you, you touched on a really good point, you know, that teaching and coaching are very intimate. You get to know people really well. One struggle for me as a classroom teacher, for years, the best relationships I had with members of the community were from students that I coached. And so the coaching families, like your family, I felt like I connected with you and your brothers and other people that I coached for so many years. It bothered me that I didn't have that relationship in my classroom with the average student. So that's part of a shift in my career that's nagged on me that I had to make changes. So I, I've, I've tried. I've tried new things in my classroom. Like I eat lunch with my students. I don't eat it in the faculty room. So they come in. We listen to music. They get crumbs and dirt all over my classroom floor. <laughs> they leave and I play dad and clean up, but I wouldn't have it any other way because we're, we're doing something together. And I'm, I'm trying to, to make real, real connections with students that demonstrate it's not just this dude in front of the classroom all the time. This is a real person. Yeah, that's an awesome point because that's, I mean, it's like an exchange when you think about it. You come into the classroom, you listen to the teacher talk, and then you move on to the next classroom. And when you're a coach, I mean, you were with us, I mean, for how long? Some days, I mean, hours, four or five, you know, if we were traveling and on the bus and doing the same things you just talked about, listening to music, having dinner on the bus, you know, talking about things outside of soccer and you know, just life and everything. So I think that's awesome that you've been able to identify that approach and bring it over to the teaching side. And I 
I hope that there's other teachers out there that if they're not already doing it, listen to this and they're like, Oh, you know, I can spend some time with my kids and it's not weird and it's not invasive. It's just trying to make that connection. Cause I'm sure maybe you don't have exact numbers to back it up, but I'm sure you've seen a change not only in how you feel about your relationship with them, but just how the kids feel in their relationship with you. Yeah. And I, and the more teachers I meet, I mean, I've, I've now for the past four years been traveling North America, meeting teachers all over the country and in, and in Canada significantly. And I tell you, we all want to meet our students. That's the core of being a teacher and a coach is wanting to help others. It's a service industry. Most people are just looking for ideas to do it. And how can I, how can I, what can I do? What change can I make? What's working for you? Maybe that'll work for me. People are just looking for that. There's a lot of great people out there that are, in the field, giving it all, blood, sweat, and tears. They may not be doing it as a coach, but in the classroom, man, they're doing it. And it's really inspiring for me. Yeah, that's really awesome and great perspective on everything. I want to talk a little bit more about the coaching speak, or excuse me, the coaching part specifically. Talk to us a little bit about why you wanted to get into coaching. You were already doing the teaching. I mean, what motivated you to continue to spend more time with the youth and to help them in their athletic careers? I've, I've always noticed that coaches have a special relationship and I have seen in my life, you know, teachers who coached and that they had something special with their students. And when I say coach, I'm using that term loosely. I've also seen people in fine arts, drama directors. I've seen it all that they do a little more outside of the classroom and that, that resonates with students. Of course, selfishly, they behave a little better because they like you. <laughs> but in the long term, the relationships, that's where it's at. So I wanted to think back about the sports that I was trained in, in soccer and basketball. And I wanted to give back. Uh, also, at the same time, uh, develop relationships with my students in the community that I was working in. The joys of teaching in a classroom. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I think that's the last bell. There might be one more. <laughs> Not a problem. <laughs> so I became I became a coach, uh, hoping that I could mimic the volunteerism that I saw and build relationships that I saw from other adults that had an impact on my life. That was my great hope was that it would translate to way beyond the classroom. You know, my Facebook stream is full of former students, and I think it's great. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's very cool. And I mean. When I was playing for you, I mean, seventh, eighth grade, still trying to figure out life, obviously, but I had probably one coach before you that I had had like an actual big connection in the way that I had connection with you. And it used to drive me crazy because you would always make us run a mile during soccer and I just could never understand why, but I did it because I was like, oh, well, he obviously cares about me, cares about the team. Like he's always talking with us. He's always there to support us and everything. And I think I even ran my fastest mile at some point during one of those seasons. I can definitely say from personal experience that what you were trying to do, at least with me, you made that connection and that mattered. And I know that you know we had relative success at the modified level. And there were a lot of players on my team that went on to have a lot of success at the high school level and even at the collegiate level. And I think a lot of that development starts right there at middle school. Like that's a really key area to help somebody further their career. And I'm wondering for you, like what's the balance when it comes to coaching? Like how do you determine how much time you spend on something like the culture part where you're connecting with the students versus the skills part where you're working on the drills and things like that? Like how did you make that determination? Was it a year to year thing depending on your team or how did that work? Uh, as a younger coach, I, I shifted, but as I became more experienced, it literally became responsive. So in my mind, I, I would do needs assessment about what, what group do I have in front of me and how long do I have to grow this group? Do I have a group that is has low skills, but they're very athletic? That would happen many times. I would have kids who play a different sport, wanted to try soccer, for example, uh, very athletic, but didn't have the skills. So I tried to coach a team around what I had. You know, the modified season is so short. It's two and a half months long. It's, it's not enough time to uh, truly develop a skill set necessary for success, but it is enough time to build a team and to build enthusiasm around the sport and to instill a lifelong passion for the sport. 
And that that's always been my goal is there's a joy in, in sports. And um, yeah, there's work, but you get success from that work and you can see it pretty quickly. So as a coach, if you're able, especially for younger athletes, which is my wheelhouse, especially for younger athletes, if we can, we can show hard work pays off, we can say learn from failure, and we can talk about just doing your best, and that might not be enough to win a game, but it was still the best you could possibly do, tied with this is great. We get to play a game together. I think there's a lot to that. Awesome. You mentioned that youth sports is right up your wheelhouse, but did you ever have an itch to move up, You know, whether it was JV, varsity, Maybe a little bit, but I, I honestly would say that that was probably more pride and more bravado, like moving up the ranks. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that would have been better for my school community. If I had been a high school teacher, I think that would have been more relevant. I know some people identify as a coach who teaches or as a teacher who coaches. I think I may have I said that out loud a few times, but honestly, coaching and teaching to me were the same thing. So if I'm working with an age group, I'm going to work with that age group. In the private sector now, coaching my own children. We have a club team. We have five teams uh, ranging from U5 to U17. So I am coaching every level now and I love every minute of it. 30 second break to talk about my sponsor, Sweat with Scott. What a great sponsor she is. She's been with Pod since day one and we love having her support. Sweat with Stods offers a number of different options to get you on a path to improve your fitness future. Everything from fitness, nutrition, and simple healthy habits. So what are you waiting for? Head over to sweatwithstods.com right now. And when you buy a program, enter the code DYNAMIC at checkout to receive a discount for being a loyal podcast listener. Now back to the show. You talked about heartbreak that you had in your past and how you talk about it on stage and maybe you talk about it in the classroom and maybe you talked about it when I was a soccer player with you, but I just don't remember. But can you talk to us a little bit about what that heartbreak is and why it's so important to get that message out? Well, I think heartbreak is part of the human condition. We know that the the thing or the person or the object or the goal that we really truly love most, if and when it doesn't work out, that's where heartbreak settles in. What I've learned in life is that when your heart is truly, truly broken, I don't mean that in a romantic way. I mean, like you have a broken heart, you're trash. That can create some pretty amazing building blocks for the next step of life. And that's, that's what I've resided myself to. I earned my PhD for a purpose. I had a career goal in mind to serve uh, at the school where I grew up and was transparent about that. And when the opportunity came, the job was offered to me and then taken away two weeks later. So that was the only reason I have a PhD. Uh, it totally broke my heart. I never intended to be in public education this long. Not that I didn't appreciate and value this time. It just never was my goal. It was never what I thought was going to happen. You know, it kind of broke me down pretty good. But it also, again, prepared building blocks for me to talk to other people about heartbreak, about your plans versus the universe's plans and how things don't work out quite the way we want. So our attitude is, what do we do now? You know, you talk about the pillars of leadership, for example, and grit, perseverance. It's so important and that we model it and that our children and our students and those around us who truly understand what we're going through in life, they're watching. And what better lesson to teach them than perseverance and forward motion, uh, regardless of what life throws at you? Yeah, I love that. I think persistence, perseverance, grit. All those words are obviously interchangeable, and it's something that I know I've identified with more as I've gotten older and realized that I had more of that in me than I thought when I was younger. It was one of those things that drives you nuts because you're like, man, I could have done this or I could have done that, but it's a learning experience, and to know that you have that quality about you, I mean, the people that have that, those are, to me at least, those are the people that really do some special things because they don't give up and they can pivot. It doesn't necessarily mean that you like beat a dead horse and keep going after something that's unattainable. I mean, you just talked about your specific example where you thought you had an opportunity, it was taken away. You know, it's not like you are continuing to pursue that now that that opportunity has been over. You pivoted, you're in a great situation now, and that requires grit to be able to continue to move towards a new goal, 
even though it may not be exactly aligned with what you had originally intended it to be. Yeah, I mean, what do you, I mean, what are you going to do in life? You know, you're going to quit and just stop. Uh, my my reason for pursuing advanced degree, uh, my PhD. That again, that job was offered and taken away a year before I finished my PhD. At that point, I could have just quit and quit and walked away from it, but um, I chose to continue. Uh, honestly, I have three children. Uh, it was my hope that someday they could reflect back and recognize that in one of the worst times of my life, I moved forward, and I want that to be an example for them. It's not really something I share with my students so much, but I do talk about historical examples of that. And like, well, what are you going to do? Look at what these people did. You know, is it fight or flight or is it somewhere in the middle of that? At the end of the day, we just need to move forward in life and seek a positive alternative. Yeah. And that segues us really nice into my next question, which you had alluded to earlier about how important it was as a 12 year old, you were thinking about having a family, having a wife and kids. And obviously through that example, you just gave us, you're thinking about how, what you're doing and how that's impacting how your kids perceive you and what they do in the future. What does your family really mean to you though? Like if you can sum it up for us, how do they motivate you? What do they provide you with? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Pretty much they're everything. You know, I want I want the best for them. To the point where the school that I was, I believe, supposed to be at, which I'm not, um, my children attend it and my wife volunteers there. So every day I'm reminded of heartbreak because it's not about me, it's about them. It's best for them. I'm adamant about that. I, I know that. It doesn't mean it's best for my pride. It's not necessarily best for my a healing process of moving forward in life, but um, it's not about me. It's about them. And I want them to, to see some success and to understand that the work I do is benefiting other people as well. And if I can't benefit the group that they're with, then I'm going to benefit other people in some way. So cool. All right. You talked about an aha moment. I have my own aha moments. I have my own definition, but what does an aha moment mean to you? And when was the first time you ever figured that out for yourself? I think we get, I call them, you know, aha or light bulb moments. I think we get those in life. You know, you learn to ride a bike, you get that light bulb moment. You don't realize that's what it is until you're older. As a coach, I I distinctly remember uh, one kid, he just wanted to learn how to bend a soccer ball, how to kick a ball and bend it like Beckham, for lack of a better word. So I, I just remember this one kid. I, I think he only played for a year or two and never played again. He wanted me to show him. So I said, well, you know, you divide the ball up into thirds and you strike one third with the inside of your foot and the ball bends this way or that way. And boy, he did that. And it was like, I don't know, it was like a Christmas present. The kid just blew up and was so excited about, I learned how to do this just now. That is an aha moment. And so how do I translate that to teaching history? And that, that's what I want. That's what I try to do. Excellent. All right. So let's talk about what you've got going on. You just recently within what the last week or so, right? Your book Wanderlust came out. Wanderlust EDU and Educator's Guide to Innovation, Change, and Adventure. Where do you want to start with that? It's a, it's a passion project. The book is all about the teacher journey. You know, Wanderlust is an old German word, which means to love a love journey. Uh, it infers a little bit of aimlessness. So I do try to address that in the book. You know, our, our target is the love of the journey of the teacher. So we talk about self-care. I bring in some things I've researched and studied and experienced. Uh, among those is um, a field of study called human performance technology. And human performance technologists uh, identify uh, attributes of performance success. And so uh, one of those attributes, or, or excuse me, the four attributes are motivation, environment, skills, and knowledge. So if you address motivation and you understand your extrinsic and intrinsic motivators, what drives you, if that's positive, if you understand the environment that you're in, and if it's toxic, you make changes, then that needs to be positive. If your skill set is growing appropriately and you're leaving behind skills that don't matter anymore, that's positive. And if you're constantly growing in content, and experiential knowledge that's growing. And if all three of those or all four of those grow, then you're going to have positive performance success. So that's actually what my keynote is framed on. And that's one of the chapters of the book. The rest of the book, I talk about strategies for uh, addressing those needs for students in the classroom, 
I talk about change management. The book is really a change management book. I love the work of Jim Collins and Good to Great. I like to think of it as an educator's Jim Collins type book. Um, I also uh, love Everett Rogers' work on the diffusion of innovation. And perhaps I like that one the most. Most of my doctoral studies was centered on what's called the diffusion of innovation. So how do we get people to move in a direction? How do we start a movement? Uh, there's a, a TED Talk by a guy named Sievers, and his TED Talk is uh, called The First Follower. And it talks about how if you want to start a movement, it's not the first person. And if you haven't seen that TED Talk, it's a good one. It's got someone at like a fish concert or something who's dancing in a very wild way all by himself. He's a little bit out there. Uh, he doesn't start the movement. The next person who joins him and starts to mimic what he's doing, that's the first follower. He makes the movement happen. So in the book, I talk about if you're going to manage change and the change is a movement, it might be around technology, but it might also just be around a new positive project or a new strategy of instruction or a new program. If you want that to happen, you need to have a first follower. And I ask the reader to identify themselves as an innovator, an early adopter, uh, an early majority, late majority, or laggard. And those are the four levels of adoption. And if you're an innovator, that means you're the, you're the guy dancing at the fish concert. You need to have an early adopter join you. That's your first follower. So I help the reader to understand, I think, in a more practitioner manner, not so, not so academic manner, uh, what those are and how you identify that and how you make a movement happen and shift a culture for the better. So those four attributes that you talked about, obviously the book that in the title, the book says specifically that it's an educator's guide. And when you see educator, you might think teacher, administrator, something along those lines. But like, for example, I read a ton of sports books about famous coaches, successful coaches, athletes, whatever it is. And you also hear about, you know, athletes or coaches that go and speak to corporate organizations because a lot of what you learn in coaching, which we've talked about throughout the course of this conversation today, can be transferable to other things in life. Specifically, starting with those four attributes, I mean, for anyone outside of the educational world to pick up this book, can they get value, the same type of value out of this book that an educator can get? To be perfectly transparent, as an author, I wouldn't say that the book was written for anyone outside of education. However, the themes that are addressed, they're not founded in education. People in your field of study and human resources and in professional development, in the corporate world, that's where this stuff comes from. The concept of diffusion of innovation uh, was studied in uh, the, during the Cold War, and they were looking at how farmers would select uh, certain pesticides, fertilizers, and at what rate did farmers choose to use these products. And so the researcher, Everett Rogers, took what they were doing and said, okay, well, if this person does it first. They're the innovator. But how does the movement start? And he started to dissect change. And so I've taken this work and I, and I take it to heart as a teacher, apply it to my classroom, apply it to teachers I work with, and it makes a difference. And so the book is me translating uh, an academic field. of It's a cultural anthropology field and translating it for the, ed the world of education. I think I could have a meaningful conversation about change and leadership for really any field, but I would base it on that research and what I've seen. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And one of the other things that you mentioned, you saw that video. I, I don't know if um, that's something that maybe sparked that passion to talk about it in the book, but you talked about how do we start a movement? And I think that's such an interesting question because a lot of times you think of movements and maybe you think of some of the bigger things throughout the course of history, but a movement doesn't necessarily need to be something that's world changing, although it can end up being world changing, but it could be something as simple as creating a healthier habit for your life. When you say that, how do you start a movement? Like what goes through your head? Like how do you even start that process of innovation? Well, I mean, it needs to be something you're passionate about. And I mean, think about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a great speaker, gifted man, but if nobody listened, there wouldn't be a movement. You have to have people. It's about people. Everything is about people and working with others. And that's a really, really big deal is how do you identify, first of all, something that's meaningful and a change that you're passionate about, not change for, for the sake of change. There's one, one study I really like about Australian Aborigines 
who were given steel axes by missionaries. You know, these folks had used uh, stone axes for generations, and the axe became a ceremonial symbol that they would pass down, and it was a symbol of status, and they had a whole social hierarchy centered on this tool. And so, you know, missionaries came in and from the Western world said, hey, we have a tool for you that you should use instead. They're trying to start a movement. And their movement was steel axes. Well, they gave everybody steel axes. The entire social structure fell apart. The, the old respected now became those that were trying to get something from the new and the young. It just was a disaster. And there are unintended consequences to it. And it doesn't mean that, you know, introducing this movement or this change or innovation to a group comes from a bad place. It just means we have to be really thoughtful about what the movement is that we really want to see happen. I think that's an awesome point. And I'm curious how long this has been percolating in your head to make this change. Because you said, don't make the change just to make a change. It's got to be something that's impactful. And you have to think about the consequences of what's going to happen. What drove you to ultimately say, okay, this is something I need to do. I need to write this book. We need to get it out in the public so people can read about it and I can talk about it more. As I wrapped up my dissertation, which is 300 pages that no one's ever going to read, I would talk to people about some of these themes and they're like, wow, it's amazing. I would like to read that. And then I would present them with the 300 page, you know, telephone book dissertation (laughs) and they'd be like, no way. So then I thought, well, okay, I want to share what I learned. So I I wrote a keynote, and I've delivered the keynote probably 50 times now, called Wanderlust EDU. And the reception I got from people from the keynote was one of growth, one of meaning, and one of power, and of change, and of good things. And it it helped people. And that's pretty exciting. So then I, 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 a couple years ago, decided that, well, there's more to this story, and I haven't had a platform to share more of it. So writing a book, I think, is the appropriate platform. So take the lens of a practitioner, a doer, and take the academic research from the past and put it in a, in a place, a book, that can help people. And so that's where the book came from. So the physical aspect of writing the book was more than a year process, it seems like, right? Yeah, I mean, my dissertation took a decade. I did it the hard way. The book itself, the writing of it, took less than a year. But working with a publisher... And um, trying to get a publisher, then work with a publisher and work with an editor. That adds a lot of time to a book that I think a writer or an author doesn't think about, unless you're self-publishing. Was it difficult to find somebody to support this journey, or did you just kind of catch on with somebody right away? It was a little bit of a challenge. You know, I was rejected a couple times from different places, and I found uh, an independent publisher that I consult with, actually. Um, and that was an in, it was an inroad to get this published and that, that really helped. So, you know, now the next book, you know, what do I do now with the next book? Do I, uh, continue down the same path? Do I look for another publisher? You know, those are, those are interesting options to explore. Do you already have an idea for what you want the next book to be about? Yeah, I've already signed a contract with a, a large publishing firm for the second book. It's about, this one is tool specific. Wanderlust EDU is a story of change and how to promote change. Uh, it's device agnostic. It doesn't have anything to do with the tool, even though I talk about technology. It could be anything. The second book is uh, about augmented reality and virtual reality and how augmented reality and virtual reality can cause great change in education, but they require pedagogical shifts. So your method of delivery of instruction has to shift with it. There's a lot of research around empathy that you can instill a higher level of empathy with students. In my classroom, I had 17 students at once going through uh, Anne Frank's house, The Secret Annex, as a story was being being, um, articulated from a young female actress for them to listen to. And my students left that 20-minute experience like shook, like, whoa, I just went through Anne Frank's house. And the empathy level just skyrocketed from a story of a random person in the Holocaust to something that they experienced. So the second book is about that type of story. And then how do we how do we leverage this technology meaningfully and not just use it because it is and because of the novelty, but how do we really shift instruction? I love it. That sounds really interesting. And I can't agree more that, I mean, that personal connection, if that's what you want to call it, where that example you gave with Anne Frank and how much more you appreciate 
you know, what somebody had to go through when you can experience it personally versus just reading it in a textbook or reading it on a computer or whatever it is these days that kids do. If you had one piece of advice for a first time author to get started with a book or whatever it is, like maybe the biggest place where you ran into a snag throughout your process, what is that piece of advice that you would give? Piece of advice is that if you're going to do the work, it's got to be worth your time. So if you're not passionate about it, if it's an academic pursuit and you just want to get something done, don't bother. If it's a bucket list, that's not the bucket list to have. Many people have a, I want to write a book bucket list. You got to have a why. What's your why? And the why is more important than the what. The book's the what, but why? You know, what are you going to do with it? What's the purpose of writing it? Uh, My advice I'm regularly giving to people is to start blogging. And to keep your blog post down, something that I have a very hard time with, keep your blog post under a thousand words, post as much as you can. And if you start to see a theme, then you might start be writing some chapters. And if you get a bunch of chapters, you might start to be writing a book. And so it's a way to chunk it rather than uh, uh, go after it like one large project. Yeah, that's very practical. And it makes it maybe a little bit less daunting (laughs) of a process when you look at it through those lens got to be prepared to iterate and you have to be prepared for people to say, I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> be able to find some tools to help you, help you edit your own work and find some people that you trust that you can have talk about and have stories with. Just watch them, watch, watch what resonates with people. Watch the eyebrows go up, watch their, their eyes well up as you tell something that's meaningful to you. And you may not want to share that story, but when you recognize that it benefits somebody else, it helps them grow as a person, then then you got to sell that story. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. We've talked about coaching. We've talked about teaching. We've talked about speaking. We've talked about writing. You're obviously an extremely well-rounded person. You're also involved with your family, and I'm sure you even want to have some type of social life outside of all that work and all that family time. But in order to write a book, I mean, there's got to be time where you are learning and continuing your education and taking time just personally for yourself, not worrying about your relationship with your students or your relationship with your players when you were coaching or, you know, even your relationship with your family. You just need to be able to take that personal time, whether it's an hour a day or 30 minutes, whatever you can get. What are some of the resources or the ways that you like to get your personal development? I know you talked about that you've done some programs in the past, but uh, even if there's books, you had talked about Jim Collins' book and some other things. Just kind of give us a run through of some of the most important or maybe the most impactful things that have really done well for your personal development. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I have a lot of academic pursuits and I have a lot of readings that I do, but I consider myself a man of faith. I read devotionals, I read the Bible, I listen to sermons, I try to teach others things that are meaningful in life that I find benefit in, and that easily uh, has provided me with the greatest growth. Has it helped me to be a better writer? I think so. I've learned a little bit about what good writing looks like. Has it helped me be a better speaker? Yeah, I've seen some pretty good speakers and done a little bit here and there. But faith and spiritual growth have had a profound impact on my life. Uh, having uh, a firm foundation biblically has allowed me to work and persevere through difficult times. And um, I hope that the growth I've had as a person, um, I know I'm not done yet. I got a long ways to go. One of my favorite preachers, uh, Billy Graham, his wife died and uh, her, her gravestone says construction over. Thank you for your patience, which I think is hilarious. (laughs) And I think that that kind of resonates with all of us that, you know, we are we are people who are constantly growing. I firmly believe that we need a, a direct connection with our creator. I find that in the in the academic world that that opinion is rare. And I wouldn't be true to myself and true to you and your listeners if I didn't say that. Yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that. I appreciate the transparency with it because I'm especially in education. Obviously, there is a big divide. I mean, there was a divide when I was growing up and I'm sure it's only worsened over the years with different things like that. So to be able to stay true to yourself, I mean, that's what people like about other people. That's when, you know, whether or not they agree with it, they can appreciate that you're being honest and that you're being transparent. And I think that obviously goes a long way towards your connections and everything that we talked about with relationship building and 
um, obviously speaks to the character that you have as a person as well. The show is called Dynamic Leaders. And I know it's hard, this question, to narrow it down maybe to one person, but I always like to give my guests an opportunity to shout out somebody that they think is a leader in their own life or somebody that has really impacted them from a leadership standpoint. Is there somebody that you want to give a shout out to quickly? Yeah, I would uh, definitely identify my dad. My dad's one of the hardest working people I know. He uh, persevered in life, you know, worked at the nuclear power industry without a college degree for uh, 40 years, demonstrated that providing for the family was paramount and demonstrated that supporting uh, volunteerism by my mother and my family was important. And it wasn't all about the money, uh, but investing in community, whether it be faith-based or local community, is more meaningful than being the wealthiest man on the block. So cool. Micah, before we let you go here, uh, I want to talk about just the book again real quick. It is available on Amazon. Is there anywhere else that people, if they're interested in finding the book, that they can purchase it at? fastest way to get it is uh, bit.ly, so bit.ly slash wanderlustedu. Um, that'll get you directly to it. Uh, Amazon is our conduit to get that book out there. That's the fastest. And if somebody tracks me down, I'll be happy to sign a copy. <laughs> awesome. And then before I let you go, I always like to give my guests an opportunity either to talk about something that in addition to what you've already got going on is exciting in their life or just leave us with you know, one last piece of guidance or advice. Do you have anything for us here? Yeah, I, I do. I think that when we're talking about leadership, the, the highest quality leadership are people who are ready to serve. It's not the people who consider themselves the guru at the top of the mountain. I know full well that when I speak to an audience, there's somebody there who's more qualified than me. I'm ready to learn from them. And I think that's a trait that every leader needs to have. They need to be ready to learn from others. It doesn't matter what rank or what title someone has. We all have to learn from each other. What a great way to end this conversation. Micah, thank you so much for hopping on and spending some time. We know how busy you are. And I think the listeners are really going to enjoy hearing this conversation, enjoy hearing what you have to say. And can't thank you enough for hopping on and spending some of your Thursday with me. Thanks for having me. That was just an incredible conversation with Micah. I can't believe how similar he is to when I had him as modified soccer coach, but I also can't believe how different he is and the amazing things that he continues to do and that he's already done. It's just amazing. Wow, really just an awesome conversation and I hope you enjoyed it. Take a look at the show notes, the link for his book, Wanderlust. EDU, An Educator's Guide to Innovation, Change, and Adventure. You can find that right in the show notes. We appreciate the time that Micah took to hop on the podcast today. Quick shout out to my sponsor, Sweat with Stods. Go to www.sweatwithstods.com today to figure out what she can do for your fitness future tomorrow. 